we've gone from the verbal way of recording information, which was not very accurate. That's where all the legends come from to, you know, various forms of writing to the printing press, you know, to ultimately digital computers and the internet. And now data of every type is recording society in a way that essentially has a permanence attached to it. And these intelligent entities that we can create in the future will learn from all of this. It's a little scary for sure, but it's pretty exciting actually. Hello and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in business, technology, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we talk about some of the most interesting stories and trends in the news. This week, the origins of data and the future of the human and digital species. My guest is business and technology leader Bob Muglia a startup investor and advisor who played key roles in the emergence of Microsoft's database, server, and business software products, and served as the CEO of data warehouse company Snowflake Computing. He's the author, with Steve Hamm, of a new book called The Datapreneurs, The Promise of AI and the Creators Building Our Future. Bob Moo, as he was affectionately known at Microsoft, connects the dots in our conversation between data innovation and artificial intelligence. He talks about lessons from Isaac Asimov, one of his favorite authors. He compares Microsoft and IBM to Microsoft and OpenAI. He explains why he's ultimately an optimist about technology and humanity. And he tells the story of the data center that he built in his house. But we started by clearing something up that has just always bugged me. I'd love it if you could resolve some cognitive dissonance that I've always had about your name. What was your nickname at Microsoft based on your email alias? Bob Moo. And how do you pronounce your last name? Bob Muglia. Okay. There we go. But Muglia, people do Muglia all the time though. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's used, it's, it can go either way. And honestly, I don't correct people. I just need to think of a coffee mug in my head, not a cow. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Why was it important for you to write this book, Big Picture? What did you want to get across to folks? Well, I thought I had something to say. I mean, people people wanted insights from me, and I felt like I could write in some of the key insights that I've learned over the years down in a book and help people. And so I felt it'd be a useful way to get some important concepts that I thought were important for people to understand. As time went on, I mean, I think the book has become more general interest, and I think in particular because of the incredible advancements in AI. One of the things that's great about the book is in working with my co-author, Steve Hamm, you know, while I think that everyone will learn something from reading this book, I sure hope so, it's meant so that people who are really just everyday people, not you know, deep into the industry, but people who are maybe much more casually interested could read it and, and enjoy it, hopefully, and learn something as well. For me, I followed the industry as a reporter for many years, and it filled in key gaps, things that I thought I knew or didn't know, and it gave me an understanding of some things that I write about today that I didn't fully understand the history of. That's the idea, Todd, by the way. That's exactly the idea of the book, is that someone like you who is steeped in the industry would understand, you know, would learn something and get something out of the book. Yeah, definitely. Well, you succeeded in that regard. So my first big picture question might be a little too big picture, Bob, but maybe you can tackle this. Can you connect the dots between the database technology you worked on at Microsoft 
and Snowflake's technology in data warehousing and related areas to the world of generative AI that we're seeing today. Can you trace that arc for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that what it really comes down to is that people have been working with data in digital computing since really the 1960s. That's when IBM introduced some of the core concepts of databases. The 70s saw the advent of the relational database. And it was in the 1980s and 1990s that I worked on SQL Server for Microsoft, and actually in the 2000s as well. And during that period was really the golden age of SQL where people were adopting data and beginning to work with business data. All of that is knowledge in essence. If you take data and you analyze it and you reach conclusions for it from that, that becomes knowledge. And knowledge is what's needed by these intelligent AI systems, chat GPT and the like. That is what allows them to answer questions correctly without hallucination. So all of this data that exists inside these business systems is important information that will be used by AI in the future. Now, most of what AI is doing today is working with text data. Text, if you think about AI, you, talk, you hear about tokens. Those are really words, basically. And that's what AI is working with today. But in the near future, it's going to work with all kinds of data. Multimodality is coming in the very short term to work with vision, speech, as well as with structured and semi-structured data. All of those are important data sources for these information bots that are being created. You talk about unstructured data, which is the common industry phrase, but you explain really, this is complex data. That's really what this is about. Why was it important for you to make that distinction? And what does that say about the state of data and where technology is headed? Well, I've always thought that unstructured data was a misnomer. It never seemed like the right thing to call it because clearly that data has structure in it. If you look at a, an image like a JPEG, I mean, first of all, it is structured at some level. And the reason it's called unstructured over time is because it was opaque to computers. People could look at an image and go, aha, that's a horse. I know what that is. But a computer could not until recently. Now with machine learning, we can. We can extract that information from images and from videos and really documents, all sorts of data sources are sources of semantic information that can be leveraged to solve all sorts of problems. And so to me, these data sources are rich sources of data, video, pictures, point clouds that are being created by laser systems. I mean, all of these are sources of data that can be leveraged and they're actually complicated. They're understood by the application and, and understood by people, but classically are not understood by the machines. Now that's changing. One of my favorite hypothetical or perhaps real examples that OpenAI showed about GPT-4 was the ability to take a picture of your fridge and ask it what you should make for dinner. And that's kind of what you're getting at here in a sense. Yeah, exactly. That's multimodality. That's an example of multimodality. We'll see more and more of that. I mean, we'll be able to start in the short run, you know, what we'll start to see is that by taking current knowledge, you know, from things like search indices, we can take and provide information to these answer bots that are up to date to allow them to answer questions more accurately with less hallucination. Bing is doing this today. You know, one of the investments I have, Perplexity, is also doing this. They have an answer bot that answers all kinds of questions you could, you could ask, including current information. And I think what we're going to start to see is that knowledge that's being applied to transform into what I would call action bots that take action based on something. And multimodality is going to be very important in this because we're going to want to work with these bots in not just in textual English, but with voice commands as well. 
And you know, pretty soon, it will only be a couple of years where we'll be able to ask our favorite answer bot to book our favorite restaurant on Friday night at seven o'clock and see if they have a table for four and it'll respond and say, hey, 7.30 is all that's available. Is that okay? And you know, we'll go from there. Those are the things that are going to come in the next few years. One of the things that I like about the book is the way you draw in Isaac Asimov's laws of robotics. And I want to get to that in just a little bit because it's part of a larger discussion about ethics and safety and where we're all headed. And I know you're an optimist in that regard, Bob, but I have to ask you, you worked on OS2, which was the operating system developed by IBM and Microsoft. And there's a long history there where Microsoft really ended up on top in the operating system business for personal computers and ultimately servers as well, which you were a key part of. So it struck me as I was reading this, do you see parallels between the relationship between IBM and Microsoft then and Microsoft and OpenAI today? It's been brought, I've had, I've had this discussion with someone as well. It's an interesting parallel. There's an interesting parallel here. And it's, it'll be fascinating to see if, how Microsoft and Satya plays it. What happened with Microsoft and IBM was they really split. They had very different approaches. And that's when I was primarily involved, was the darker days of our IBM relationship. And you know when that happens, you're going to have a winner and a loser. Right now, Satya and Sam, I think, are trying to structure this in a way that there's a win-win between OpenAI and Microsoft. And so far, they seem to be succeeding. We'll be interested to see how that relationship evolves over time. But it is a fascinating relationship. I think Microsoft has benefited tremendously. Satya has done an incredible job of working with OpenAI and, and allowing Microsoft to take advantage of that technology with some real lead time. Uh, Microsoft had access to those models well before the rest of us saw access. And when you think to imagine today that we think of Microsoft as a leader in AI, I have to tell you, it's a pretty remark. I mean, I wouldn't have said that even a year ago. I would have said I would have said that's probably unlikely. And here we are today with them clearly playing that role. But it also comes with some trade-offs because you're leaning really heavily on another company. You're subject to the things that they're developing, yes, with your own Azure supercomputer. But I, I can imagine that it might be some complex emotions going on behind the scenes there over control and power. and Sure, but who knows what's going to happen right now? I mean, Google had this, this, this situation where they had two teams that were not working together. They've recently brought them together. That's not an easy thing to do. And in the meantime, while this incredible relationship has been built between Microsoft and OpenAI, we've seen what I would call a Cambrian explosion in open source uh, models and all kinds of services and tools around those models. And we very well may be in a situation in 24 months where the open source is leading the industry, huh. in which case Microsoft just got a huge, all they did was get a huge time advantage out of this. And, and so it's unclear what's going to happen. It could be that these mega models with trillions of parameters, tens of trillions of parameters that cost billions of dollars, maybe even tens of billions to build, they may be where it's all at. But it could also be that these smaller, more dedicated models are actually what's making the bigger difference in the industry in the next few years, in which case, who knows what's going to happen. Now you're bringing to mind all these questions about Linux and Apache, but... <laughs> yeah, well, that came later, though. That was much later. In, in this case, it's happening simultaneously. 
you know, between red pajamas and the llama stuff and all these things that are going on right now. It's I, I mean, I've never seen such a fascinating time of interesting, uh, interesting technological uh, progress, really. I mean, amazing progress. Talk more about that. I did want to get you to characterize this whole era. Bill Gates has said that someday using a computer without AI would be like today using one without a keyboard and a mouse. Do you see this emerging wave of generative AI as as fundamental as that? Well, I mean, you remember, I don't know if there was a, there was a, one of the old, the one of the Star Trek movies, with the, the Scotty on it, he comes back into the, the, the time I was back around 2000 or something. And he starts trying to talk to the mouse that was sitting, <laughs> that's sitting there. And, and I mean, I think that's more of what, our, I mean, the reality is I think computers will be smarter than the computers in Star Trek, really. And that's how we're going to interact with them. I mean, it will not be very long when I say there's these bots, these action bots that will just do things on our behalf. And, you know, they'll help us manage our calendar. They'll, you know, certainly help us in, in shopping we do. And, and um, there'll be lots of people who want to make all kinds of ways to make shopping easier. Can you imagine? And meanwhile, they'll, you know, like say they'll book restaurant reservations and help us with our flight information, all of those sorts of things. We're talking with Bob Muglia. He is the author with Steve Ham of a new book called The Datapreneurs. And we will be right back. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. You're listening to the GeekWire podcast. And our guest this week is Bob Muglia, the author with Steve Hamm of the new book, The Datapreneurs, which traces the arc of data innovation and projects the path toward artificial general intelligence. Bob, you write in the book that your aha moment on the new era of generative AI came in 2022. So you were well into the process of writing this book. I was. It was when you saw GitHub Copilot which is the service from GitHub, which is the Microsoft-owned data repository and cloud coding service. What was it about Copilot that made you go, ah, this is it? Well, I, I work with Scott Guthrie in the Microsoft team and I help advise them. So I had an opportunity to see this a few months before it was released last year. And what blew me away was that at that time, they were seeing that people, developers who leverage copilot in their software coding was writing 40% of the code that was being checked in which is astounding i mean that's an astounding number you think about the productivity improvement the idea of it being able to improve somebody's productivity by upwards of that amount it's remarkable and what has been fascinating in listening and talking to the microsoft teams is that this is just the beginning they think they can continue to make these things smarter and smarter and get that 40% up to 50 60 beyond that and that is just remarkable to think about the fact that these tools could be applied to the development task to make their jobs easier. It makes it really clear that you can apply this to almost any application, and it has a very viable role in simplifying that process. I think every application is going to get remade in the next five years to have an AI interface and have AI as a core part of that application. What happens to human creativity and ingenuity in all of this? It's a really good question, isn't it? I mean, it's a fascinating question. And I think that it, it certainly allows us to do things that we've never, we've never had time to do. You know, you think about the tasks that people do in their jobs. A lot of it is busy work. 
for almost everybody. And, and I think that these assistants, these co-pilots will make those sorts of things easier, allowing people to be very creative. But it really is fascinating. I mean, I say this one of the things I, in writing this book, it gave me an opportunity to really re-engage with Isaac Asimov. I had read almost, I mean, Asimov wrote 470 books during his career. So it's just a crazy number. And I didn't read all of them, but I read hundreds of them when I was, when I was in my really? teens and twenties. Yeah, absolutely. I read a large part of his, of what he wrote and I put it down um, when I joined Microsoft, it was about the time. I mean, he he passed away in the early '90s, shortly after I left Microsoft, and I sort of put his his work down, and I only picked it back up when I started writing the books. And it's interesting that in his novels, robots, while there were clear laws associated with them, and they performed all sorts of useful tasks for people, he clearly had a complex view of the relationship between people and robots. For one thing, in his books. And, not, and robot novels, robots were only in space and expanding as people traveled to other planets and ultimately to other stars. Asimov never saw robots establishing themselves on planet Earth, which is very interesting. Huh. And so his perspective on this, in the long run, when he tied together his foundation novels and his robot novels, he actually saw robots send humanity on a path without robots, Largely because of what you just said, because what happened in his robot novels is that the people who adopted robots and brought robots deeply into their society became lazy. They didn't progress the way they should. Um, they lived long lives, but they were so worried about their life that they just didn't get stuff done. And so he saw that this had negative elements as well. And so it's really fascinating, right? I mean, it's just a fascinating question as these tools become available where and how should we apply them? Again, I think there was a lot to learn from from reading Asimov. This will probably be the first time I've ever referenced the Bible on the GeekWire podcast, but the, <laughs> the reading at the Lutheran church that I occasionally go to near me in Seattle yesterday was Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. and, and I couldn't help but sit there and think, man, God was one hell of a prompt engineer. <laughs> Let there be well, light. <laughs> That's possible too. That's possible too. That's, that's, that's but, kind of what I, that, that's sort of the last question. That's Asimov's last question in some senses. So Yeah, yeah. Well, I've sort of been sitting here thinking about this lately, uh, inspired in part by your book, but also by just some of my own experimentation with generative AI. It's almost like the human takes on the role of a gardener in this new world where, you know, you're picking the soil, you're picking the seeds, you're watering the plant. You're not actually generating the plant. That's nature that's doing that, but you're creating the conditions and using your own human expertise to help bring it to life. You know, you're even looking at the stems for signs of bugs to make sure it's not doing something wrong. You know, that's sort of the bigger picture metaphor I've been thinking of. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it's reasonable, actually. I think that our relationship with these tools that we're creating, and right now they are tools, okay? And I think this is a very important thing when people think about AI in the future, this distinction that we must make between AI and the use of AI as a tool used by people for whatever purposes people want to use them for. And people will use AI for every possible purpose, the good, the bad, and the evil. We've heard a lot about the evil that we know there's also a tremendous amount of good that can be done with AI as a tool. Then there's the question about what happens as this AI that we're building becomes smarter and smarter and reaches what we might call the point of an artificial general intelligence where it, it's as smart as an average human. 
at some point, do we think of these things as entities that are peers of ours that we share this earth with? Perhaps. I mean, I do think that's where we're going. I do think that's where we're going. And I think that we are already imbuing ourselves into these things that we're creating. Whatever we create, it will be based on the values. It will be built based on the values of the people that put it together. And every day, more and more learning is happening about society and people that is happening digitally. And ultimately, all of this is information, it's data that can be leveraged by the AIs of the future to learn about humanity and to learn about us. We are putting ourselves into these systems. That is certainly true. I mean, it's not, I mean I'm not a big social media guy. My daughter certainly is. Certainly the, the generations of people that are younger, their entire lives are getting recorded now digitally. That's a foundation of what essentially becomes a digital twin of each of us in these systems that potentially can live on beyond us. So, I mean, in a way, in a way, it is a form of being able to create a, a certain level of immortality. And it comes back to what I've always believed um, as a humanist. I've always believed that what matters is what we do on this planet and the impact of what we have with other people in society. Now, for the first time, that is getting recorded in mass, right? I mean, we've gone from the verbal way of recording information, which was not very accurate. That's where all the legends come from to, you know, various forms of writing, to the printing press, you know, to ultimately digital computers and the internet. And now data of every type is recording society in a way that essentially has a permanence attached to it. And these intelligent entities that we can create in the future will learn from all of this. It's pretty exciting, actually. It's a little scary for sure, but it's pretty exciting, actually. You write in the book, we are all in this together, and I believe people are the solution to any problem. I'm also a techno-optimist. I recognize the incredible challenge of governing machine intelligence. We will make mistakes along the way, but you write, I believe we will eventually get it right. Why are you so confident? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I grew up, I mean, partly I when I grew up, it was the middle of the Cold War. When I was in elementary school, I ducked and covered, hmm. you know, and- we lived through the, I mean, I remember thinking as a child, the nuclear weapons were going to destroy humanity. Now they still may. I mean, it's hard to know that, they, I mean, in a, in a way it's a scarier time than I can remember in a long time. But, you know, we've learned to live with the nuclear threat over time. And, you know, while people sometimes compare, and I just saw another thing in the, in the news this morning, comparing AI to potential d destructive capabilities of nuclear weapons. One of the very big differences, and it's an incredibly big difference is that AI has an unlimited number of positive uses to be applied to. There are no positive uses for nuclear weapon at all, none. And unlike that nuclear weapon, we can apply AI to the betterment of humanity and really to helping to create the future of all of us. And I think that that future will be shared with these digital entities. It's, there's just no amb ambiguity about it. Well, Bob, so far, all the questions I've asked you have come from my own brain, but I did feed some of the chapters from your book into ChatGPT and asked ChatGPT what I should ask you. And I want to ask you two of those questions, which I thought were the best. When we come back, you're listening to GeekWire, and we will be right back. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? 
Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. You're listening to the GeekWire podcast, and I'm talking with Bob Muglia. He is the author with Steve Hamm of a new book called The Datapreneurs, which traces the arc of data innovation and projects the path toward artificial general intelligence. So, Bob, as I mentioned before the break, I just copied and pasted into ChatGPT. Geez, I hope that was okay based on copyright. But anyway, I did it. <laughs> How much uh, of the book did you throw into it? Did you I, 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 there were limits, so I had to do. I did uh, maybe I did portions of about five chapters. Okay, because uh, you can't do throughout. the whole thing, and no. it can't be the whole thing. No, yet, so not yet. So these were a couple questions. Each of them is sort of along the same lines, but I liked them because they got more to the roots of what we're seeing now in the database technologies that you worked on. So here's one, reading verbatim. As someone who played a pivotal role in the democratization of the relational database, how do you see these foundations being applied or transformed in the era of AI, machine learning, and large-scale data analytics? First off, what do you think of that question? That's a great question, actually. I mean, it's a pretty good question. There's a little ambiguity about what it means by foundations, I would I yep. would say. So I think there's a, it's a little bit ambiguous in that sense, but I'll answer it as best I can. I mean, what I would say is, is that what we've seen is an evolution of the way software is developed. And certainly relational databases have always be, have been developed by having researchers build papers, which then become shared algorithms which then become implementations, which ultimately result in open source implementations, which take on a larger and larger part of the workload. And you know, we see that today with databases like Postgres having become probably the most popular new database that people would use to build an operational, operational application with. And so over time, we see these things become open, open faster and faster. What's happened and the big difference is the speed at which all of this seems to be happening. Where in the case of what I described in the relational database, that took years, potentially even a decade or two. This is happening in days almost. I mean, it's I, I was sort of stunned to see how fast the open source movement is progressing and the fact that we can now, well, there's no question today, GPT-4 has reasoning capabilities that are beyond what you can do in open source. It's not clear how long that'll be true. I mean, it's possible that an interesting question, does open source surpass GPT-4 capability before GPT-5 comes out? I'm not predicting that it does, but I wouldn't be shocked if it did, if that makes sense. Yes. Very interesting. So before I ask the next question, that leads to a natural follow-up for me. How is this informing your approach as an investor, as someone who works with startups? Like, What are you thinking about? What are you advising them? In terms of the bets that they make on different tech platforms, I'd just be interested in your overall thoughts on that from that role that you play. Right now, there's, I mean, AI is being built into, as I say, every application. It's something that's a topic in every company, I think, right now. You know, the two sort of approaches that people are taking are what I just described. You can either take a bespoke model like GPT-4 and leverage it. And people are doing that in many ways, and they're going to see some tremendously powerful solutions out of it. It is a little more expensive to go that route. And because of the general nature, at least now, you deal with hallucinations a little bit more. I suspect those problems, certainly the issues of hallucinations will be fixed in the not too distant future. 
The other approach is to build uh, an application using these open source models and leveraging them in, in a much more bespoke sort of way, focusing on very specific problems and then solving it. And we've seen that at least in some cases, in very specific cases, an open source model can outperform GPT-4. It can certainly perform as well, and it can and, and operate on much, much smaller number of parameters, so it's much less costly to run. And also, it's easier to work with proprietary information that way without sending it to OpenAI or, or other big companies. So I think we see a little bit of both. A number of my companies are developing based on open source models. Dakugami is one. that's They're building large language. They're actually doing fine-tuning of open source models right now. And have discovered that you can do very high quality fine tuning with very specific data. In this case, it was business contracts and documents that they were able to get, you know, sort of uh, open documents that were not not proprietary. But by working on that and, and doing fine tuning, you can actually do a really good high accuracy job for literally thousands of dollars of training versus hundreds of thousands or millions. So the speed at which this is happening and the ability to advance new things seems to be quite incredible. That company that you mentioned, Dakugami, was started and is run by one of your former Microsoft colleagues, Jean Pauly, who was one of the co-creators of the XML standard. This is all off the top of my head, Bob, so I might be wrong on some of this, but remind me of your role. You're on the board and you're an investor? I've really been a mentor to Jean for years, and I've been I've been involved in Dakugami since the beginning, and I'm, and I'm a board member, an investor in it. And you know, they're working on on extracting information from business contracts. And you know, now the technology has evolved where it's really working. I mean, the big the big issue, and it's really fascinating. A year ago, you asked me this question: What can you do? Like a year ago, two years ago, people didn't think this stuff was working and was going to work in the near term. Now everybody knows it's going to work, and the only question is. When is it going to work and who's going to build the best solutions around it? If you were starting a startup today in this realm, data, AI, what would you do? Well, I'm, I mean, I've also I've said this before and, and I'm working with people that are doing it. I mean, I probably won't do it myself, but I'll find people that are doing this and I am finding people who are doing this. I really strongly believe this. Again, I think there's, there's two things. I think there's intelligence and then there's knowledge. You know, knowledge is data that has been analyzed and where you have reached conclusions, okay, of some form. So knowledge is where you have some basis of understanding of something. And what I would focus on right now is trying to establish semantic knowledge of a business and being able to incorporate that knowledge, actually being able to take that knowledge and express it in the in some in a form that can be leveraged to actually run the business. Today, if you look at a business, the knowledge about the business process is scattered across dozens of different applications hidden inside algorithms that are totally opaque to everyone. And it's in the heads of a bunch of different people. It is communicated primarily through Slack and Teams and tools <laughs> like that. Those are the tools that people tend to use to communicate these things. And frankly, that's not that different than it was even 20 years ago. I think all of this is going to change with knowledge graphs. I mean, I remain a big believer in relational knowledge graphs. I think they're a way of, of establishing semantic knowledge that can then be leveraged by these large language models. So I think we'll still see the creation of this of the semantic information. And that's what I would focus on. The thing I realized about two years ago was that it's too complicated for people to put together. 
And I realized that one of the biggest challenges we face as we start thinking about encapsulating the semantic knowledge of a business into a knowledge graph is how do you actually pull it together? And then these transformer models appeared. And it's like, oh my God, I know I can do it now. Now I know how it can be done. And so I've been working, I've been trying to find ways to actually solve the problem for the last couple of years, working with machine learning people. And what we've seen is a complete transformation of machine learning. It's almost gen one machine learning to generation two machine learning that are based on these foundation models. You know, today they're language models, soon there'll be multimodal models. And now all of a sudden a whole bunch of problems can be solved that were really impossible before. What are the startups you're working with that are tackling problems in that area? Well, one of them is one a company called called Seek.ai. That's an investment I recently did. Uh, Sarah Nagy's working on that, and she's been focusing on that. There's a couple others I'm working with that I haven't made investments on. But this is an area where, where we will see significant advancement. Okay, let me ask you ChatGPT's other question. And then I've got one more of my own before we go, Bob. So here's ChatGPT. Given your unique perspective on the evolution of databases, what future developments or potential disruptions do you anticipate in the database industry, especially with emerging technologies like quantum computing and blockchain? That's interesting. Oh, wow. So they bring in quantum. Quantum is fascinating, right? I don't, first of all, blockchain, I think, plays a minimal role in things. Blockchain is critical when you lack trust. And with a database, by definition, you pretty much have trust. You have trust in whoever's holding the database. So we, I've thought about a bunch of ways to try and apply blockchain into databases. And while there are some, like having a secure ledger, that's a real thing, they're relatively limited and, and not going to be some general purpose. Quantum is an unknown to me. Quantum could change everything. I've, I've always sort of believed that digital computing you know, was going to bring us to this future where we have... Today, it looks like an intelligent future. I didn't realize how much intelligence was going to come, but I, I, I've always felt it would help us to build knowledge. Now we have intelligence that can be applied to, to knowledge. Quantum, I think, might take us to the stars eventually. I think that if you sort of look at what quantum might do, it's people don't know what's possible yet, and it's going to be fascinating to see the things that get created there. Quantum is kind of like everything, everywhere, all at once, but applied to computing. Yeah. So the potential for understanding and, unlock, and unlocking the secrets of the universe is really extraordinary, right? I mean, there, there, there must be more. There's much, so much more we don't know. That's the thing that's so fascinating is how much don't we know? The more we learn, the more we realize we don't know so much. And now what's happening is, is the pace of, of innovation continues to accelerate. So I think we're going to learn a lot more quickly. Well, Bob, there were so many fascinating anecdotes for somebody like me in the book. You alluded to the fact that you wanted to take Snowflake public as CEO. The board didn't want you to do that. I'm tempted to ask about that, but frankly, that's ancient history. I'm more interested in the data center that you built at your house because I loved the lesson that people could draw from it in terms of well, the Microsoft phrase would be eating your own dog food, which I always thought was one of the worst phrases possible. But anyway, in terms of using the technology that their company and their teams built, tell us about the data center that you built at your house. I was building this house and working on this in the early 2000s when I was running Windows Server 2003. And there were all of these technologies inside Windows Server that were pretty obscure and, and trying to understand them was difficult. So what I did is I you know, I built a raised floor data center and I, at one point had 11 servers, Windows servers running in there. And, um, I decided to simulate a medium sized business. You know, I had done a bunch of work on, and, and the team had done a bunch of work on small business server 
to put all these pieces together for a small business. But if you exceeded that one server in capacity, it was a mess for people. So I put this thing together and, and what I was able to do was, you know, I was running System Center and, you know, SharePoint and Exchange and SQL Server, all these things. And so when I met with my teams that were delivering this technology, I had questions about it that they didn't have, you know, they, I understood more about it sometimes than they did because I had just spent the blasted weekend trying to make the blasted thing work, you know, and all the problems became apparent to me. And that's why I did it. Now it is truly a white elephant though. Yeah. I mean, everything's in the cloud. I'm, I'm thinking about turning it into a bathroom, <laughs> but it would be a lot of work. It'd be very expensive. It would be very expensive. <laughs> well, I loved that because as somebody who likes to try to use the technologies that we write about, like, you know, I buy half of the stuff Amazon comes out with for this reason. Like you end up coming up with questions that surprise the people you're interviewing because absolutely, it's a use case they hadn't thought of and maybe an edge case. But anyway, you, there you are as an executive leading this team. I can only imagine that the product was made that much better and you were that much more insightful as a leader because of that whole exercise. Yeah, but we all suffered from it. My my daughter <laughs> was growing up at the time said the famous line was, dad, I want to live in a real house, one that doesn't need to be rebooted. And, <laughs> and, uh, and the thing I realized is, you know, I, it was so, it seemed that I just did not understand when I did this is how fast stuff goes obsolete oh. and then you have to replace it. And it's just a constant mess to keep it. That's why you get rid of it all over time. I've now taken, I take the opposite approach having done that, uh, which is that everything in a house needs to be purchasable at a Best Buy. That's my current, because <laughs> that means it's consumer grade. If it's consumer stuff, it, it, it tends to last more and it's, it's easy to upgrade or throw away and get a new one if you need to. It's the, it's the other stuff that's miserable. Bob, what do you hope people take away from your new book, The Datapreneurs? Well, I, first of all, I hope people learn something. The goal of the book was that you know anyone who would read it would learn something, and I hope they're able to enjoy it. I hope they take away an optimistic viewpoint about the future of technology. We're seeing a lot of, there's a lot of people that are saying a lot of scary things, and there's a lot of reasons for, for people to be scared, but I'm a big optimist, and, and I think we're going to have some, some very, very positive things coming in the next few years. Some, you know, some co-pilots that will assist us in ways that, that will be very, very helpful. You know, and I do predict that the 2030s will be the era of robotics. That's the era where robots will play a bigger and bigger role in our lives, ultimately, you know, driving us around and, and certainly the freight airplanes and things like that are all going to go autonomous in the not too distant future. And I think, you know, we're going to see a world where we will share it with these devices that are gaining in intelligence. And you know, while there's some lots of lots of reasons for worrying about that, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism too. Bob Muglia, thank you very much for talking with me. Thank Todd. Good to talk to you. Bob Muglia is the author with Steve Ham of the new book, The Datapreneurs, The Promise of AI and the Creators Building Our Future, published by Peak Point Press. Thank you for listening to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Kurt Milton edits and produces our show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the GeekWire podcast wherever you listen. Tune in next week for a special midweek episode featuring a conversation with Jason Del Rey, the former Recode reporter who has a great new book out about the rivalry between Amazon and Walmart. We'll talk to you then on the GeekWire podcast.